loving Father, we are reminded that Moses was commanded by God to teach his people and for his people to teach their children and their children's children that the Lord our God is one and to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. We are further reminded by Mark that Jesus, when asked what is the greatest commandment, said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. John records the extent of God's love as Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Lord, we acknowledge that we live in a sinful world, and that we are a sinful people, and that we often take your love and sacrifice for us granted. We pray today that every day, we stop and reflect on your love for us and reflect your love into the loves, lives of those that we come in contact with. That we as your children would reflect the character of the Father and our example, Jesus. That those who come in contact with us would be touched by your spirit and see Jesus in us. We pray for our children and our children's children that we be faithful and teaching them the truth about the Lord our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The world is not doing that. We acknowledge it as our responsibility. We pray that we be sensitive to the needs of those we come in contact with in our families, our church, and our community, that we slow down and take time for others. We pray to you as the great physician for the physical needs of our family. We pray for Margaret Madsen and we thank you for the results of her swallow test. For Andrea and Danielle Brewweller's daughter Linda in her ninth month for a safe delivery. For Malia Broderick as she endures harsh chemo treatments for, and for healing for her for Walter Carter and for Jeannie and Ruby Couch for grace and wisdom as, Roger, as Walter rehabs. We pray for Horace Smith for healing of his bladder issues and strength. We pray for Jim and Florence Wells for healing and strength. We pray for Daphne Wright again for healing, for Roger Hoti for the healing of his leg. For Lois Ashley, our former missionary to the Philippines, for healing of her abdominal issues. And we pray for Dolores Smith, who right now is in the emergency room. And we pray for wisdom for her doctors that are treating her and for grace for her and her husband. Lord, we pray for uh, our pastors, our leaders, our teachers, for those serving in the nursery and parking lots that you would bless them, that we not take their service for granted. On this, the Sanctity of Life Sunday, we pray for those making a decision regarding life and pray that they realize that you are the creator of all life and that you can sustain them 
and that they choose life. Finally, we ask you to prepare our hearts to receive your message delivered by Pastor Tim and to put it to use in our lives and personal ministries this week. And we pray it in the name of Jesus because he told us to. Amen. Amen, and thank you, Larry, for leading us in prayer. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. We're grateful for all those kids' volunteers that will join them out in the lobby and head upstairs. Parents, you can pick them up in their classrooms upstairs at the end of the service. Thank you all for joining us on another Lord's Day to gather in the presence of our risen Savior and also together as an assembled community uh, body of Jesus a few things I uh, want to let you know about in the life of the church. We had hoped to have an ice skating night for our families tonight. Um, that fell through. The cold temperatures shockingly affect ice and the ice skating rink's operation. So it is too cold to ice skate. That's how cold it is. Um, but... Um, the youth are going to meet tonight, and they'll meet with a movie night. It'll be kind of a different night. They'll have a movie and some discussion. And so youth, uh, middle and high schoolers, um, plan to be here 530 to 730 in normal, and you can communicate with AJ any details on that. Um, uh, also wanted to let you know that there is an um, upcoming winter conference, and you need to talk to AJ about that um, by today if you're interested. We had some changes. We opened up the door for some more registrations Talk to AJ about that. Um, and then we're going to show one more testimony video about our women's quad groups. Um, we've been telling you there's a lot going on in men's and women's ministry. Our men's ministry just started this Every Man a Warrior journey. And if you've missed that and um, want to do it, then I would encourage you to uh, go ahead and fill out that form online on the Church Center app, even, if, even though you're a couple weeks late for it, and get your information in, and, and one of those guys will contact you. Um, but the quad groups, the sign-up was originally listed for yesterday, but I have it on good authority that you can still sign up today because that, that sign-up is still on the Church Center app. So for the women's quad groups, you can sign up today, and we wanted to show you one more testimony of just what these groups uh, can do in connection and community. And then after the video, we'll jump into Hebrews chapter 3. I loved our quad group, so it's going to be hard the next go-around to beat the quad group because it was so awesome. There were five of us in our quad group, and we just would meet up at public places and just talk about what happened throughout our week, things we needed prayer for, or just really get to know each other better. And to be honest, I don't think any of us, especially with the age gaps, would have gotten to know each other the way we did without doing the quad group. We had been going through some infertility issues and the women in my quad group knew about that from the beginning and then also they got to pray for us about that and then I ended up pregnant by the time our quad group had ended. So it was just fun for all of us to, you know, for me personally in my life for them to experience that with me and I just felt like it made us all closer. It was just such a good group of women together that they made each one of us feel comfortable enough that we could open up like that because each one of us were vulnerable with each other like every single person would talk about something personal and there was no judgment and 
it was just really easy to open up. Usually one of the reasons people don't want to sign up is probably because of their schedule or timing or they have kids or work, but honestly we were very flexible with when we could meet. We just had just girl time, so, and it was just fun to like have a break from everything else in our lives. I'm excited to just meet another group of women that I might have never had the chance to get to know better. I actually loved having the different age demographics because the women who were older than like say Kat and I in our group just brought so much wisdom to the table. They have been so sweet like just to us as younger moms. So there are some papers on the back black table. If you want to um, fill out one of those to sign up for the quad group, you can put it in the offering box, or you can sign up on the Church Center app, as I said, for the women's quad groups. Um, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. And just so you know, we're, for the most part in Hebrews, we're not putting the scriptures on the screen. I'm trying to encourage you to bring a Bible to church and to do it the old-fashioned way. Um, I know that your phone has the Bible, and I appreciate and value that. But I would just encourage you to, to open up the scriptures and um, mark things in your own version of the scriptures so that you can come back to them throughout the week. Um, this is a dense book. There, there's a lot going on here. The theme is incredibly simple, and is three words, Jesus is greater. And you would think that if that is the theme of the book, then a lot of this stuff would be simple, but it's, it's really not. And it's, it's things that we're going to keep on coming back to, things, that's gonna, uh, things that are going to really affect our relationship with Jesus, the way we follow Jesus. And so I hope that you are taking some notes, writing some things down, um, comparing notes with family after the fact to see where Jesus is moving us. Where Jesus is moving you as individuals, or you as a small family, or us as a corporate entity, as a group, a body of believers. Um, this chapter, Hebrews 3, is all about heroes, and, and specifically contrasting two heroes, Jesus and Moses. But over the last week, uh, my family and I, we, we started watching this show, um, Percy Jackson, and Percy Jackson has a lot to do with Greek mythology, which is not real, and you all know that. But you were probably somewhat familiar, I hope, with the Greek myths and the different Greek gods and demigods and the ancient history behind those figures and concepts. And it's important, I think, in our culture to understand different mythologies and religions and how different people have conceived of God, their existence, the creation of the world, that sort of thing. And in this Greek mythology, you have all of these gods that have different gods of different things and, and that are responsible for different areas. You have demigods that are half God, half human, because the gods aren't really moral or trustworthy in any sense. And then you have all these great heroes that arise. One of the interesting things about human culture that Greek mythology demonstrates in an ancient sense, and our modern culture has no problem demonstrating in any number of ways, is that culture makes heroes. Humanity makes heroes. Because, if we're all honest, life gets hard and challenging. We don't like to have limitations. We, we don't like to face the crises and, and the hardships that we do. And so there is something appealing to us, and it's always been true of humanity, there's something appealing to having these great superhuman figures 
these heroes that can overcome things that the rest of us can't, these heroes that can be great champions and accomplish these incredible quests or incredible tasks that the rest of us, the normal people, could not. Because it's good to imagine, it's fun to reflect. The first couple chapters of Hebrews had a lot to do with angels, right? And angels, same sort of concept. There's something fascinating about the supernatural, about things that are other than us. In the same way, we make heroes out of sometimes our imagination, coming up with great spiritual figures, superhuman figures. You see that in our culture today in, in the, the fascination with, with different fantasy worlds or um, comic book characters and superheroes. We love heroes today in the same way the Greeks were trying to conceive of their world through these superhuman figures. There was this draw. But beyond that, it's not just superhuman figures that become these great heroes who can accomplish things. We make heroes out of people, out of our history, out of our society. And so we have our heroes of American history. Uh, George Washington, first and foremost, a, a figure that becomes sort of superhuman in our, in our understandings, in our lives, that was, that was a man, that was a great man, accomplished many great things. But George Washington, other founding fathers, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, all these other guys that in our minds take on this almost mythic character because they've accomplished great things. We look up to them, we honor their memories, we celebrate what they've done. In, in modern society, we have heroes too. And sometimes it's the same. It, it's political leaders that, that represent the policies that we value. We look up to them, we, we idolize them, we, we think they represent us well. But it's not always just political figures. It, it could be um, just celebrities in general. When we find a celebrity, a, an actor, actress, a, an athlete that seems to share our values, that talks about Jesus in front of a microphone, we tend to idolize that person too. We celebrate. We want to see that person be successful because in some way they represent our values on the human stage. And so we celebrate. We get behind. We follow them on social media. We listen to their, to their videos and we see what they think about different things because in some way they're similar to us. They think like us. We celebrate that. We follow them. And then in the church too, we create our heroes. We create heroes of great authors, of musicians and songwriters, of pastors and those that have larger platforms. And we think, you know, I don't have all these answers to these complex theological issues or societal issues. I don't have these answers to these incredible apologetic issues. And I have this loved one that doesn't believe in Jesus and I can't answer their questions, but I'm so grateful that there's this figure over here that can, that has all the answers. You look up to that person. You idolize that person. You put your faith in that person because of what they represent. But heroes fail us. And it's something that I think has always happened throughout human history. But even more so in our technologically driven world, in our divisive culture, in our cultural hot button moments, we see heroes failing us. We see people we look up to, people we idolize, let us down. And I would say there's probably any one of us that could name several pastors, authors, writers, musicians who you once looked up to that had some failing that disappointed you. And then you thought, do I keep that guy's books? 
Do I keep singing that person's songs? Do I keep voting for that political leader that has failed me and let me down? In our society, the reaction when a hero, when somebody that is influential, that has a large platform, that's on a stage somewhere, when our heroes let us down, what do we do? We cancel them. We, they've hurt us, and therefore we respond in hurt. We deplatform. We act as if they can't speak authoritatively, authoritatively on anything. They're, they're good for nothing now. And that seems to be the inclination of the age, uh, that those that have a platform we love, we listen to, we idolize until we don't and until we disagree. And then we cancel, we demonize, we attack. Why is that? What is it about us that loves heroes so much and can so quickly turn on a hero that lets us down, on a hero that, that fails? And I'm, I'm not talking uh, about just Christians or secular culture, I think there are similar trends in both. I think in the secular culture, all you can do is cancel. There's no grace, there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. The Christian culture, we, we hold these values of we recognize people are sinners, we value repentance, we value restoration. That needs to be our approach in those moments. But the hurt is still there. When somebody that we love, that we've looked up to, either from close, a hero that was close to us, a Sunday school teacher, a personal pastor, that hurts more, right? Those big platform people, they hurt a little bit. But what if it's your pastor, your teacher, your mentor? It hurts even more, and the emotional reaction is even greater. Let me tell you something about the theme of Hebrews. When I say the simple theme of Hebrews is three words that Jesus is greater, let me tell you an underlying theme behind that. And this is why we, are, we should be, in this moment, drawn to the book of Hebrews. Your heart was created to follow a hero that was perfect. And that emotion in your heart of wanting to idolize someone, wanting someone to follow, looking for a path through all of the questions of life, that reacts so viciously and so angrily against the one that hurts you, it comes from a desire for Jesus. And those outside the church, they have it too, they just don't know it. And you look at our cultural trends that so badly want to idolize people and then want to demonize the same people afterwards. There is something about the human heart that is wired, that is made to follow a great leader, a great hero, who will not let us down. Now Israel, Israel had a series of leaders. And so the book of Hebrews here in the New Testament, this is a book written to the church, but it's written to a church that is struggling between do we go back to being Jews and just follow the ways of the old covenant or do we keep following Jesus? So the reason the author of Hebrews is always coming back to this game of comparison where Jesus is greater than your other options is because they were actively considering other options. They were considering returning to the Jewish model of the old covenant, of the sacrificial system, of following the Torah and leaving behind the way of Jesus. And he's saying... There may be more structure and law and clarity in some of the Old Testament structures, 
But there's more beauty, there's more grace, and there is ultimately more meaning and purpose in the way of Jesus. So with that, we open Hebrews 3. And for the first time, we see the comparison move from angels, which is a big theme in the first section of the book, to now this comparison between Jesus and the greatest hero in Israel's history, Moses. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We're going to unpack this six verses, a short passage in three simple steps. Number one, consider Jesus. That is the overall theme, and that is the perfect application to any sermon ever written. Consider Jesus. And number two, we'll move from considering Jesus to we'll consider Jesus because a builder is greater than a head of house. And then next, because a son is greater than a servant. So verse one, simply consider Jesus. Two through four, the builder is greater than the head of house. And then the last two verses, that the son is greater than the servant. So in verse one, consider Jesus. And all that he has said up to this point, remember last week we talked about these two very difficult concepts of number one, Jesus was made perfect. So at once, at one point, Jesus was not the perfect Savior, and then something happened and he became the perfect Savior. And it's simply because there was a time in which Jesus was not a Savior in actuality. He was always created to be the Savior. He was the perfect Son, but the perfect Son became the perfect Savior by suffering for those he saved. And additionally, last week we also talked about the way he became the perfect Savior is to not just be the founder of our faith, although he is. I think actually the the better word picture out of that that passage that kind of speaks more to me, and I hope it spoke to you last week, is that he's not just the founder, as if he's in a boardroom somewhere and he started a movement and everybody else just sort of moved. He is the pioneer of our faith, meaning there is nowhere we will go in the Christian life, that Jesus has not blazed the trail for us. He is the pioneer of our faith. And now, out of all this, he says, this is how great and how beautiful Jesus is. Now stop, the author of Hebrews says, and consider, reflect. What do you do about this, Jesus? With all that he's done, how do you live in response He gives two titles for Jesus here in verse 1. He is first the apostle, and he is second the high priest. Apostle is something unique to this passage for the author of Hebrews. This is the only time he refers to Jesus as an apostle, but we sort of know what apostles are, right? We know that the 12 disciples of Jesus 
were renamed after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. They then became the apostles. Disciples were followers. That's what the word disciple means. Students, a student follower. And the word apostle means messenger. Someone that speaks a message that they have heard. So in the learning phase, they were disciples, learning and following. And then they were given the role of speaking on behalf of the one that they followed. And so we have the disciples that um, had followed Jesus in his life, became apostles after he left, and then Paul notably was added to that as an apostle, and the apostles were a special category of those that would speak for God. And Jesus now is the perfect apostle. He is the apostle in the fullest definition of the term, the apostle par excellence, an apostle that no one else could compare to, the ideal ultimate apostle. Why? Because you remember in this one story about Jesus in his life, the crowd was marveling at what he said. Why did they marvel at what he said? Because he spoke as one with authority. Jesus didn't just speak out of intelligence, out of education, because he knew the right answers. Jesus spoke to the crowd and, and grasped the crowd's attention in a different way than anyone else that spoke in his day because he spoke as God. He spoke as a man and as God at the same time, both an apostle and the divine God speaking at the same time. And so to consider Jesus as an apostle is, is in one sense, it feels like, which Y'all know, Hebrews does this a lot. Sometimes the book of Hebrews kind of offends our sensibilities of what the divine is. That's what we talked about last week. You mean Jesus was made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? It challenges our sensibilities about in what sense Jesus was perfect, became perfect, and is perfect. In this sense, it almost feels wrong to consider Jesus an apostle because he's not representing a message from someone else. He's giving his own message. He is God. And that's where Jesus is the definition of the ultimate apostle. And all apostles that follow him are representing his message, not their own message, his message to the people. He's not just the ultimate apostle. He is the ultimate high priest. So apostle is a messenger, a spokesperson. A high priest is a mediator. Messenger and mediator. The mediator is the one that goes between. Twelve times, one time, one time the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as an apostle. Twelve times he, he refers to Jesus as the high priest. Twelve times in 13 chapters. It's almost like this is a big deal in the author of Hebrews' mind. He considers this to be one of the themes of his message to give to the people. Jesus as the high priest is a mediator of a better covenant a better legal agreement between God and man, a better system of sacrifice because it was once and for all, a, a better way of life because now you don't follow according to the law and, and adherence to the law, but according to the way of Jesus and following Jesus. It's a very different type of priesthood. And so Jesus is not just a messenger from God who is God. He is a mediator between man and God who is God. The complexity and the beauty is all wrapped up here. Incidentally, we're about to talk about Moses. Moses was, in one sense, kind of the original apostle. Because who spoke more for God than Moses? 
No, nobody, really. I mean, even, listen, Paul wrote 13 books, good for Paul. But you look at the words of the books of the law of Moses, Moses had an incredibly unique role as a messenger, a mouthpiece, speaking from God to man, bringing the words of God to man. And so in a sense, Moses was the first apostle. You know, Moses was not a high priest. Actually, Moses' brother was a high priest. But Moses was yet somehow superior to the high priest because Moses was the one who God chose to speak through to define what the high priest would do. So Moses was not, you could consider in the Israelite mindset that the high priest was the highest spiritual authority in the nation at any given time. That's the way the nation of Israel worked. The highest spiritual authority was the high priest. Well, Moses was better than the high priest because Moses wrote the high priest's job description. Moses mediated between the high priest and God. The high priest mediated between God and man, but Moses was between the high priest and God. So in all of these incredible things that Moses did, and he was great, and he was a hero, and he was the one that Israel would look back to over thousands of years and say, how great was Moses? He led us out of slavery. God did amazing things through him. God delivered the nation through him. Moses gave us the law. We are here to follow Moses. And the point of this passage is Jesus is better. He is better because, starting in verse 2, we see this picture a builder is greater than a head of house. The passage says that Moses was faithful over God's house. In verse 2, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. I want you to, as your homework for this week, go back and read Numbers 11 and 12. In the Old Testament, you'll see this story from Numbers 12, where what happens is, um, Moses is the key leader of the nation of Israel as they are moving out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land eventually. And here they are wandering around in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 12. And Moses' two siblings, Miriam and Aaron, are mad at him. They get angry with him. They challenge him. They're maybe a little bit jealous. Maybe there's this kind of sibling rivalry. Can you imagine if your brother was the head of the nation and spoke directly from God and you were one of his lieutenants and you thought, these people don't know that my brother is actually not that great. I need to prove to everybody that my brother is just a normal dude and he messes up sometimes. In fact, think about Aaron's perspective. Aaron was like, I got this job because my brother was stuttering over here and said, you need to go talk to, Mo you need to, go talk to Pharaoh. And so, of course, Aaron's going to be a little frustrated with all the ways that the people follow Moses and they, they idolize Moses. And so we have this sort of rivalry that comes up. Miriam and Aaron disagree with Moses' decision on his marriage. And so they come and they question him. And Moses, this is what the passage says about Moses, and it's amazing. Moses, in Numbers 12, what the passage says is Moses is the meekest man on earth. Now, Moses is the dude that sat there and was afraid to confront Pharaoh because Pharaoh was the most powerful person in the world. Moses was afraid to confront him. But by the end, it's not Aaron that's talking to Moses. Or it's not Aaron that's talking to Pharaoh. Moses 
is talking to Pharaoh. Because the need for Aaron wanes with every confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses becomes, starts holding his own a little bit more. And Moses is the one that spoke on God's behalf. Moses is the one that did miracles right in front of the eyesight of Pharaoh. Moses is the one who warned Pharaoh, who pleaded with Pharaoh. And eventually, Moses is the one, the only man in the world to whom Pharaoh relented and said, you can have your way. Think about the incredible voice and strength of Moses to speak for God. And yet, Numbers 12 describes him as the meekest man on earth. Why is that? Because by another definition of the same events, Moses didn't do anything. Like, this is the way the human heart and mind works, right? Sometimes we can convince ourselves that human beings are really great or that we're really great and look at all I've accomplished. But there's this reminder in Moses' mind of like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't turn that water into blood. I didn't bring those gnats. I didn't bring those frogs. I didn't send the angel of death. I, I didn't do any of that. I was just a messenger. And so Moses, when his own brother and sister come to challenge him, he says nothing. Read it, Numbers 12. Moses doesn't combat his brother and sister when they attack him. What happens? Who goes to battle with Miriam and Aaron? Have a scary thought. God himself. God himself shows up in a pillar of cloud and says, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam, meet me here. He gives them a meeting place. He comes in a pillar of cloud, and he says, back off of my servant Moses. And this is what he said. He says, back off of my servant Moses because he is faithful in the house of Israel. Now, the, the two descriptions of Moses in Hebrews 3 are, number one, faithful in the house of Israel, and number two, servant as opposed to God's son. So let's keep this in mind, okay? The author of Hebrews is explaining to you, I am preaching a message out of Hebrews 3 right now, okay? But the guy that wrote Hebrews 3 is preaching a message out of Numbers 12. He has read Numbers 12, and he is explaining and quoting Numbers 12 to the people of Israel. So I have to then know what Numbers 12 says to be able to tell you what Hebrews 3 says. That's, that's the background there. And so let's, let's be clear about this. When the author of Hebrews says Moses is just the head over the house of Israel, that's a pretty incredibly high position. Because it's so high of a position that God himself showed up to question Moses' brother and sister and say, back off of him. He has a unique role as my mouthpiece. See, Miriam and Aaron were trying to make the case to each other and to the people. Moses isn't the only one that speaks from God. Moses isn't the only one that hears from God. And God himself shows up to Miriam and Aaron and says, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I give visions to other people, but I speak mouth to mouth with Moses. What mouth to mouth means is what his mouth says comes directly from my mouth. Nobody, this is coming from the mouth of God, Nobody has that authority except Moses in Moses' day. Now, was Israel right to think of Moses as a hero? Yeah. 
He's pretty incredible in his role in human history, in his role in Israelite history. He did speak for God and give them the law, give them the system. Here's how to be right for God. Here's how to follow God. Here's the list of all you need to do. He led the people through the wilderness. Moses was incredible. He was great. And Jesus is better. So we see that the head of the household is a lofty position in Israel's history. But a builder is better than the head of the household. Jesus literally built the nation. Jesus died for the nation. Jesus assembled the nation. It's different. There's another Old Covenant passage that's in the author of Hebrews' mind in this passage, and that is Zechariah 7.2. Zechariah 7.2 says, The branch will build the temple. Who's the branch? We know that to be Jesus. The branch imagery in the Old Testament is beautiful and complex, and I love to think about all of the ways that the prophets speak of Jesus as a branch, as a shoot, as, as, a, as a tree that comes out of a felled stump. And Jesus, from the city of Nazareth, the little small town, country Hickville of Nazareth, Nazareth is literally Branchville, the, the town of the branch. Jesus, from Branchville, is the branch that builds the temple in Zechariah 6.2. And so there's a fulfillment of prophecy pictured there. There's a fulfillment of Moses' role. And as we go through Hebrews, it would be easy to think that the author of Hebrews doesn't like Moses. It would be really easy to make that application. The Mosaic law is done. It's dead. It's no good. He uses the word obsolete for the Mosaic law. He uses that word, the author of Hebrews does. It's a complex word. We've got to figure that out and understand it. But never, never should we ever interpret the author of Hebrews as not liking Moses. That's not the point, guys. The point is, Moses is awesome, and Jesus is better. You see, if I was to make a comparison and say, Jericho, you are a great football player. And I made the comparison to the worst football player imaginable. That wouldn't be a good, good, right? If I said, Jericho, I want you to go out there and run the ball. And, and when you get the ball, I want you to take off running because, Jericho, you're fast. You are faster than that infant over there. Go outrun that infant and you'll get a touchdown. No, that, that's not encouraging. That's not exciting. That's not a reasonable comparison. What I say to Jericho, the fastest kid on that team, if you get to the corner, you can beat him. Because it's true. Because I saw it. So Jericho, you get to the corner, and you can beat him. I'm not making the comparison between you're better than the worst. I'm making the comparison to say you're quicker in this context than their best. And so the comparison that the author of Hebrews is making here Jesus is better than the best imaginable. Jesus is better than the angels who exist outside of time and space. Jesus is better than the one who literally gave us the law that he came to fulfill. Jesus is greater because a builder is greater than the head of house. He goes on, he makes another comparison that a son is greater than a servant. Again, I told you Numbers 12, um, 6 and 7 speaks of Moses not just as a head of God's house, but as a servant. In fact, I'll just read 6 and 7 to you from Numbers 12. He said to Miriam and Aaron, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. 
Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Recognize, the passage that the guy in, in Hebrews is preaching to us here says, don't speak against Moses. So, I'm not going to speak against Moses. The author of Hebrews isn't going to speak against Moses. He's just telling you, and I'm telling you, that a builder is greater than a head of house, and then the last comparison, that a son is greater than a servant. That's what um, 3, 5, and 6 tell us. For Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify, to, to speak to things that hadn't come yet. Now, again, this is a hinge of history. Like We can look back on our history and see these significant periods. There's probably one of the, the, the two periods of time that shape our history so foundationally are the Revolutionary War. We love to read history books about that and reflect on that. We watch movies about that. Or World War II. We love to, to, I mean, how many World War II buffs do you know that just love reading about it, reading about all of the, the ins and outs? Because those are proud moments of American heritage, of American strength and, and victory. We love to reflect on those things. For Israel, it was Moses. It was the Exodus. It was all the heroes of the Revolutionary War and World War II and any heroes of the American Great Awakening, spiritual heroes that we might have. All of those wrapped up into one maybe capture a little bit of the mystique and the heroism that Moses represented to the people of Israel. An incredible person that shaped their identity. And yet, everything that he testified about was to come. I told you. Paul wrote 13 books. Moses wrote five. Those five books that Moses wrote, they're a thick chunk of the Old Testament. You can go back and look. It's 200 pages in this one. 200 pages in this, in this version of the Scripture is the, the Old Covenant Scriptures, the Torah, that God spoke to Moses to give to the people. And for hundreds of years, for generations, the nation of Israel was a past-oriented people. A past-oriented people that looked back and said, gee, wasn't that great back then? And the whole time, Moses is future-oriented. And all that, looking back to the Torah, what Moses was trying to get them to do, and what the nation of Israel did in, in, in some certain things, even the Passover, it's built in. You look back so you can look forward. Because the one that was giving you all that revelation back there was constantly looking forward. And so we cannot live as Christians, as Americans, and they can't live as Israelites, as only a past-oriented people. Looking back because it was so beautiful back then. Looking back because it was, it was so great back then to see Yahweh deliver the people of Israel. So many examples in the scriptures of people looking back and wishing that their current day was like that day way back then, when Moses was trying to push them towards the future. Moses knew, you don't need me. There, there's something that I'm testifying about that is to come. 
testify to the things that were to be spoken later. There was always more to the plan. The story was never over with the close of Deuteronomy. There was always going to be more that God was going to do, and Jesus, the Messiah, was the answer for all of that. So a challenge for us as Christians, the Christian challenge is sometimes we look back, we face our society that's super messed up, it's depressing, it's frustrating. We look back in our history and we think, man, things were so much simpler back then. Things were so much greater back then. And Jesus is not, is not wanting us to simply be past-oriented. Jesus wants us to look back to the cross, to be past-oriented enough to look back to the cross so that we can be future-oriented enough to look at the new kingdom and say, my life is shaped by that day and that day. Two days. The day that Jesus rose again from the dead to accomplish victory over my sin and to accomplish life for me, and the day that I will meet Jesus face to face. Those are the two days that matter. That day, that day, today. I live today in light of those two days. That's what Jesus is directing us toward. Past-oriented for the purpose of being future-oriented in the present day. Not to be past-oriented in this great hardship and depression and think it was so much better back then but to be past-oriented enough to, sit, to know that Jesus changed our reality. That everything changed then. Everything was accomplished then. And we may not see it all today for all that it is, but one day we will. So we live today in light of that day and that day. In verse 6, he closes this passage. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Again, a servant is not a low calling in this passage. The context of Numbers 12 says Moses was uniquely faithful and called to an incredible role of service. He's not, he's not a lowly servant like we think of the term servant. Servant is an exalted term for Moses, but a son is still better. He says Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house and he says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Hold fast in confidence and boasting in our hope. Where is your confidence? Are you living and walking in confidence? Or has the world beat you down? Has hardships beat you down? Maybe there's some broken relationships in your past and in your present that cause you to just walk a little bit more gingerly around people with a little bit less confidence because you've been hurt, you've been questioned, you've been broken. Or maybe you've actually legitimately messed up. Maybe the problem is not what people have done to you, but the problem is what you have actually done yourself. You messed up. You blew it. And so you walk around with a little bit less confidence because you know that your greatest failure has, you, you have allowed your greatest failure to define you in some sense. Where is your confidence? He uses the term boasting in our hope. I'm going to tell you what I think that means. He is saying, just like Moses was the meekest man on earth, because Moses knew where the real strength came from. It wasn't him, it was Jesus. But here, the author of Hebrews is telling you, you should be proud. You should boast, and you should boast only in the hope that gets you out of bed 
that day, that gets you living that day, today, in light of that day. Maybe the better way of phrasing it in English is we hold fast to our confidence and the hope we take pride in. The hope that we can boast in. So what we're holding fast to is not necessarily our boasting, but, the hope, but what we're holding fast to is our hope. And our confidence is so strong in the hope that we have in Jesus that we can actually boast in pride such a strong level of confidence to say, I know I did mess up. I know I have hurt people. I know I have been hurt by people and I still walk with that pain. But my confidence, my hope, I boast in confidence knowing that I'm still beloved by Jesus. That Jesus has still called me son. And Jesus has still called me his own. So there's really two key applications to this passage. Two key phrases, okay? One in verse 1 and one in verse 6. Two points of application that we'll end with. Number one, consider Jesus. And number two, hold fast. Consider Jesus from verse 1, hold fast from verse 6. Consider Jesus. What, what does that entail? Well, the word for considering means reflection. It means deep thinking. It means taking time. So there are all these components that can go into this idea of considering Jesus. So I want you to think about, as a family or, or as an individual, sit down, take some notes this week. What does it mean for you to consider Jesus? I'm going to give you three, three words Three other C's besides consider that maybe can help you see what is captured by that term. Commitment, concentration, and connection. Consider Jesus. Consider the commitment you've made to him. And is there more time, more attention that you can commit? We all know there is, right? Wherever you are now, go a little bit deeper in that commitment. Take a little bit more time. Take a little bit more seriousness. Take a deeper commitment. Not towards tasks, but towards Jesus. But know that tasks, practices, disciplines help us connect with Jesus. So a greater commitment. Maybe greater concentration. You know, I was thinking about it this week. My brain has changed. And it's not for the better. And I think we have to be realistic about the fact that all of our technologies shape the way our brains work and shape the way we consider, the way we concentrate. Do y'all remember how Netflix used to be? Like you, you pull up a screen and you select what you want and you can take time to consider and think and reflect. You know how Netflix is now? I feel like that's how my brain is now. I feel like my brain used to be where I could decide where I wanted to give attention. I could compartmentalize. I could focus. I could choose. I'm going to focus on this thing right now. And then I'm done with that thing. I'll focus on this other thing. Well, now, if you click into the Netflix app, probably some of you know, it always is moving, and it's always talking. And you can't just look at a tile on a screen and select it. There's always a trailer playing. And you scoot over to the next show, and the trailer is playing, and it drives me insane. And yet I know things like that, those little pixels, those little screens, they shape the way our brains work. They take our attention from us. They teach us to multitask in a destructive way. They keep us from full consideration and concentration and shape us 
to be half-hearted creatures. Shape us to be double-minded. Shape us to lack the ability to consider Jesus. So if you're going to consider Jesus, take a step deeper in concentration, a step deeper in commitment, and a step deeper in connection. John 15 says, abide in me and I will abide in you. How do we abide in Jesus? Through some effort, through some discipline, through some practices. But know that practices, disciplines are not about task completion. They're about personal connection. Do I want you to get up every morning and read your Bible? Yes. Do I want you to read your Bible so that you can check the little bubble on the Bible app and say you've done it? No. I want you to consider Jesus and your concentration, commitment, so that you can connect, so that you can be in his presence and turn off everything else for a few minutes and say, Jesus, what are you saying to me and how does it shape my today? What are you gonna tell me about what you've already done or what you've promised for the future that allows me to live greater and deeper today? Consider Jesus because your other heroes will fail you. It's a promise. It's not an if, it's a promise. Even the most righteous, the most faithful, even your, a parent who, who you idolize or a mentor, at some point they're going to do something. Hopefully it's not a large thing, but even if it's a small thing, the people you love will let you down. But Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13 says, is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Now, How many of us as, as heroes have failed us have, have looked and said, that's not the person I used to follow. That's not the person I used to know. They've changed. The power, the platform's gone to their head. They're not as faithful as they once were. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is the only reason that this next point makes sense. Hold fast. Every other foundation will shift. Everyone else will let you down. Every other conviction you have will fall short of giving you the strength and the foundation to hold fast. Matthew 7, the storm comes on the house on the sand and on the house on the rock. It's the same storm, different results. Why? Because those who are anchored in Jesus and doing what he says and following him hold fast. The culture is sinful. The world is scary. Life outside, it is dangerous. And it does make sense at one level to cower in your home and say it's safer here. It's safer with just my people. It's safer with just my family or just those that I know love Jesus. It makes sense at one level. But at an eternal level, if we are anchored in Jesus, we know that we are always safe no matter where we go. Even when we're hurt. Even when we're tossed by the storm. Even when we are attacked maligned and persecuted we are safe and jesus tells you you can brag about that you can boast in that confidence because when you boast in the confidence of your security in jesus you're not bragging on yourself you're bragging on jesus so two simple thoughts for today in light of everything we know of who jesus is and what he has done in light of everything we know about how challenging our lives are and how messed up our world is, will you consider Jesus and hold fast? Band's going to come up. They're going to sing one more song, and we're going to sing another song that focuses on the uniqueness of Jesus. The person of Jesus 
and the role and the ministry that only He can do for us. So I pray that as you reflect, worship as, as God leads you to, but I pray that you would stand and sing. If you want to come to the altar and go deeper in Jesus in prayer at the altar, the altar is open. If you want to come talk to me, I'm right here. Let's stand as we worship the King Jesus.